Please turn together with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning with verse 25. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 25. Wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak you truth, each one with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have whereof to give to him that has need. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying, as the need may be, that it may give grace, to them that hear. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. Again, join me as we bow together and pray. Our Father, now come in your own Spirit and attend the ministry of your word. Give help to us that we may make clear the issues of everlasting truth to the hearts of your people. O Lord, let none of those who wait upon you be ashamed because of us. Equip us and help us and give your spirit now to supply that which we ourselves can never accomplish. O Lord, speak to our hearts. Even now, search us and break through and break down the barriers which are erected in our consciences against the searching light of your Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us who need so desperately to hear from you and to have our lives conformed to the image of your Son. Do forgive our sins that may be standing now even in the way of our hearing the truth of Christ and make our focus to rest upon him. Turn our hearts away from every distraction. Give us the discipline, O Lord, of looking to you and listening to you with obedient and ready hearts. Calm in your spirit and bless us with your presence and the unction of your spirit in our preaching. Lord, we ask you to supply that which is lacking. We turn to you 
and look to you who have given us promises and invited us and lifted our hearts to ask. O Lord, do not disappoint us now, but come and speak to us by your Spirit the words of life. Hear our plea through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. It is my intent this morning to continue with you in the subject of grieving the Holy Spirit. We've been speaking on this subject of the Holy Spirit for several months, and we've been focusing in the last few months on the doctrine of the gift of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Spirit. We've come now to that portion, which will be the last portion of our series, the Lord willing, on considering something of the nature of that indwelling of the Spirit. We have established the foundational fact that in every true believer, God the Spirit dwells irrevocably. God has given His Spirit to everyone who has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God will never leave utterly His habitation. But we have also discovered that in, despite the fact that this residence of the Holy Spirit is irrevocable, there remains a fact regarding His indwelling that it is not a static thing. There is this mysterious reality regarding the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit that leaves us somewhat uh, put out to try to explain exactly what we're discussing when we speak of the dynamic nature of His indwelling. But we summarize the nature of His indwelling as dynamic in two ways. First, there's the increasing of the Spirit in those in whom He already abides. And second, there's the diminishing or the lessening of His influences in those in whom He permanently abides. We noted some texts to prove that this indeed is true. The increasing of the Spirit is a reality as the Scriptures speak of the doctrine of the filling of the Spirit, of calling upon God for greater measures of the Spirit. And then we cited some texts that showed us the thought and the principle that He may be decreased or diminished or grieved or quenched in His influences in those in whom He dwells. So we have spoken of the doctrine of the complete work of the Holy Spirit which content, uh, attends conversion, that is, the gift or the seal, the earnest of the Spirit given permanently to all believers. They can never lose Him. But we also are speaking of the doctrine of the incomplete work of the Holy Spirit which attends conversion. That aspect of His coming which leaves room and necessitates growth and development. But we've been considering one of these twofold aspects of His dynamic We've been looking at the grieving of the Spirit. Now you may remember, and those who may not have been here, we'll inform you as to our working definition for what it means to grieve God the Spirit. We are saying that this terminology, grieving the Spirit, is not a real passion that the Spirit is sort of... Uh, uh, an addict or one that is entrapped by his own emotional ups and downs so that he has 
as it were, a chip on his shoulder or is easily made to take offense and withdraw because he's unstable and that he reacts the way we react in passionate emotion. But rather this expression is a metaphorical expression showing to us at least two things. First of all, God's fixed and extreme hatred of sin. He is of purer eye, Habakkuk tells us, than to look upon sin. And we understand that to mean that he is of purer eye than to look upon our sin with favor and to bless it and to see it as something to be tolerated. God is intolerant of sin. He has a fixed and extreme hatred of it. And so to grieve the Spirit is to cause this fixed hatred of sin in God to well up and to show response to us in God's reaction or in God's treatment to our work of grieving him. But in the second aspect of our definition, we observed that not only is grieving the spirit the stirring of his fixed and extreme hatred of sin, but it also reflects God's holy sensitiveness to any neglect or undervaluing of his influence, person, or work. Those who neglect the person, or the work, or the influence of the Spirit, those who undervalue it, grieve him. And this is what the text means, we believe, when it speaks of grieving him. It means to do the things that God possesses a fixed and extreme hatred for, and it means to neglect or to undervalue the Spirit's influence, person, or work. He possesses an infinite and holy sensitiveness to such attitudes and behavior. And then we discussed briefly the reason or the possibility for such a thing happening. How can or why does the Spirit grieve or is there this Reality in the Spirit's diminishing of his influence. And we listed several of those. And then we considered something of the dreadful cost of grieving the Spirit. We cited that perhaps the most dreadful aspect of the grieving of the Spirit as to its cost is that all of a sudden we don't know how to find God. God's place is unknown. The God who by his indwelling Spirit is pleased to call us his temple in whom he dwells, all of a sudden our perception of that is that he is not indwelling us. Or at least there's something uh, of that indwelling that we're not experiencing or appreciating or able to appreciate and enjoy. God's presence, which is promised to his people, appears not to be the case. And the saint himself knows nothing darker than not to be able to get through to God and to know his presence. Nothing more dreadful than to bring that about by grieving the Spirit. We noted that when we grieve him, his presence and his influence are largely withdrawn. The quickening of the Spirit withdrawn and leaving us with a sense of deadness and dullness so that the very things that ought to accompany a believer's life and testimony are not to be found. The comforting of the Spirit, the God of all comfort, grieved so that that very comfort 
is lost to us. The enjoyment of life, as the psalmist said in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And no one knows, like the saint who has grieved God, what it means to lose the joy of the Lord, which he once knew and tasted. Our sense of purpose is lost. Nothing more pitiful than to look at a company of believers who are walking as though they've forgotten the calling with which they were called, who know not where they're headed, who stumble through a day with no plan, no purpose, who don't start the day in prayer, who live the day with no sense of God's direction, and who conclude the day with no ability to look back and say, thank you for the way you led, because they're living in a muddle, because the Spirit of God has been withdrawn in His influence and His presence. Even worse, prayers go unanswered in those who have grieved the Spirit. If I regard iniquity in my heart, He will not hear me. And some of us need to learn that's still the case. You do not easily trample upon the heavenly dove and neglect His influence then as though he were some sort of holy yo-yo, try to bring him back when you feel a need for his presence. Dear brethren, oftentimes that's the problem. He doesn't respond because he's grieved. He doesn't draw near in our prayers because we've grieved him. We have done despite the spirit of grace to some degree, and our prayers are indeed unanswered. God will not hear us, and that ought to shake us and, and scare us and cause us to work very diligently never to grieve the Spirit. We also noted that in the cost of grieving the Spirit there is this reality of the diminishing of the fruit and the graces of the Spirit in their exercise. It is a dreadful thing to look at the churches in our land and often our own lives and see that the thing that ought to make us abundantly fruitful in the kingdom of God is nowhere to be found unfruitful Christians. What a contradiction in terms. But this is part of what happens when the saints grieve the Spirit. When a church grieves the Spirit, that church loses its productivity. It loses the exercise of its gifts and becomes much less useful to the Lord and His kingdom. And that's a terrible result for grieving the Spirit. In addition, we noted a sense of utter uncleanness comes on the saint when the spirit is withdrawn. We may, we could list several reasons for this, but at least one is that the spirit of Christ, who glorifies Christ and gives testimony to Christ, continually blesses us with felt knowledge of the cleansing of the blood of Christ. But what happens when that spirit is grieved and withdraws, and those fresh registrations on our con- on our conscience? of the abundant supply of the blood of Christ are withdrawn. The scriptures no longer are alive to us. The gospel loses its impact in our thinking. What happens? We feel dirty. And we're not as readily able to apply the means of grace to our hearts. And so oftentimes we come and say, we defy us. Cleanse thou me. Purge me with hyssop is the cry of the psalmist because of this sense of uncleanness, even even to the point that he describes it as a rottenness in the bones. The very depth of the person feels something of this deadly disease that is now resting upon the conscience because of having grieved the Spirit of God. 
And then we left listed as to some of the costs, the chastening of God upon those who grieve. And some of the things we've already listed are included in his chastening. The psalmist speaks of bones being broken, the bones that thou hast broken, the battles which were lost in Israel because they grieved God's spirit. And how many battles have we lost? Because all of a sudden we went back and asked God for help and he had withdrawn. What a dreadful thing it is to go out presumptuously into battle, having grieved the Spirit, as the Israelites did at Ai, and then find that God's not there because of the indwelling and remaining sin, unconfessed, unexposed, undealt with, unmortified in the camp. And notice, by the way, the whole congregation suffered. Because of one man's secret wedge of gold. And lost the battle and many were slain. Because of one man. And perhaps because the congregation was not being as diligent as they ought in knowing it. I have my doubts as to whether nobody knew what Achan did. I believe there were members of the family and no doubt others who saw what he did and allowed it to pass. God is not unjust in the way he allows things to develop. And when leaders... Or others in God's church let sin that they see go on. God will come and there may come a day when a battle will be lost and shame brought on the church because of it. And then we observe the greater sin of God's own giving us over to the devil himself. As the apostle says in the context of the passage we read. Give not place to the devil. And this is what happens often when we grieve the spirit. We open the door for Satan to take up residence in a new degree in our life and his influence then begins to replace that of the Spirit himself. Brethren, do you know how Christians are capable of saying and doing some of the things they can say and do that you look and you, you, if you didn't know better you would think it was the devil himself spitting out such things? Sometimes a saint is capable of saying things from the pit of hell. I don't know to what, how we would evaluate Peter's status when he cried out to the Lord, Be it far from you that you should be crucified. But the Lord knew the source of that testimony. You savor not the things that be of man, but the things that, that be of God, but the things that be of man. Get behind me, Satan. Saints are capable in, so, in such a way of giving place to the devil, of bringing into their own lives the kind of vile and wretched behavior that is to be known typically among the children of the devil and ought never to be spoken of among God's children. And part of the cost of grieving the Spirit is an increased influence of the devil himself in the life and the home and the church. May God spare us from it. We may summarize that by saying it's an almost unbearable weight to have the hand of God resting on the back of a backsliding saint. God's hand heavy upon the saint who's grieved the spirit is a dreadful thing. Now let me say, as we begin again this week, to consider the causes, the things that grieve the spirit and seek to remedy it. Let me say to you that if you feel no real danger or dread in this regard, if the things that we've listed that it costs to grieve the spirit don't bother you, if you are not moved and made to dread ever bringing about these things, I question whether you know anything about his indwelling or care anything about his kingdom at all. If it doesn't bother you not to be able to have your prayers answered, if it doesn't break you to wonder where God is, if that doesn't seem like such a big thing to you, 
in having God's hand of chastening and God's hand of grief heavily upon your back doesn't frighten you and doesn't bother you. I wonder about the condition of your soul. It ought to be an unbearable weight on the saint's back when he knows he's grieved the Spirit of God and he ought not let anything else come before the duty of getting that fixed and getting it rectified. Well, as we looked at the cost, then we moved to consider some of the causes of grieving the Spirit and we are in the midst of some general causes for grieving the Spirit. We'll just mention the first one which we considered last week as a general cause for the grieving of the Holy Spirit, unbelief as a habitual guest. Unbelief as an habitual guest. But the second, which we take up today, calls for grieving the Spirit and things to be avoided at all costs, is this, to neglect the means of grace. If unbelief as a habitual habit or guest grieves the spirit, so the neglect of the means of grace grieves the Holy Spirit. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verse 24. I appreciate your suffering with that review of what we heard, but there are some here today who were not here last time and also, because of the weakness of our flesh that often forget what we've heard in seven days, I wanted to keep you in the context of what we're considering in Hebrews 10, verse 24. In the context of telling us to hold fast our confession of our hope that it waver not, as we consider the faithfulness of God who promised, we are given an exhortation as to means in order to keep this persevering faith working and living. And here it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. To consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Now this assumes a corporate relationship with the people of God. We are in relationship to each other as members of one another. From the text we read in Ephesians, let us consider, take note, take thought of one another. For what purpose? To provoke one another. Let us observe how we might do the things and say the things that will provoke the other brother to love and good works. Why? Why do we need such a means? Verse 23 says, God is faithful who promised. Why then not go home, take thine ease, watch a little football, and let God who promised be faithful? Why then, on the heels of such a statement, are we exhorted to provoke one another to do the things that ought to come naturally to the saints? Love and good works. Have we not been set apart unto good works? Aren't we supposedly zealous for good works? Why then the exhortation to stir or to provoke one another to good works? Simply because we need it. If it's not done, we won't do it. If we don't provoke one another, we will lag in our love and in our good works. If the pulpit doesn't search the conscience, the conscience will go to sleep. 
If brethren don't admonish one another, brethren will think they're getting by with sin, and they'll grow bolder in it. Provoke one another to love and good works. But notice the next verse. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing nigh. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That terminology of the New Testament that is assumed to mean and to include the regular appointed gatherings of God's people to worship. And in the midst of that, the mutual duty of exhorting one another. Don't give up the public means of grace. Don't lay aside as a habit of your life the things God has provided to keep you in the way. If you lay them aside, you are nigh on to apostasy. The contrast in the book of Hebrews is between those who have grown offended at Christ, who prefer another way of religion and are going back into Judaism, and the others who perceive that they cannot go back because Christ is what the Scriptures say. He's the better sacrifice. His is the better covenant. And they endure and endure to the saving of the soul. So the last verse in this chapter 10 says, We are not of them that shrink back to perdition. We are of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. But if we are of them that have faith to the saving of the soul, those who cast not away our confidence of hope firm to the end and let it not waver, we will be among those who forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. As one has written, there are several ways you can put out a fire, and one clear way is to withdraw fuel from it. You want to grieve the Spirit? You want to quench Him? Then take away the fuel that causes Him to burn. Put yourself in a position where the means that God has given to stir up your graces are not attended. Now, there are two aspects to this I want to examine with you. First, not only are we not to neglect attending the means of grace, but we are to ne not to neglect attending the means of grace with profit. In the first place, don't neglect attending of the means of grace. Some of the Puritans had some comments about this principle, as I believe it was Gurnall who asked the following question. What is Jordan that I should wash in it? What is the preaching that I should attend on it while I hear nothing but what I've heard before? What are these beggarly elements of water, bread, and wine? And the answer? These are the reasonings of a soul that forgets who appointed these things. Someone asked, Why the Jordan? for leprosy. And the servant says, if, you, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you'd have done it. If he'd have asked you to crawl up the steps of the Vatican on your hands and knees and bleed blood, you might have done that. If he had asked you to walk a mile uh, on hot coals, you might have done it. But simply to go dip seven times in the old Jordan, that's beneath you. Why won't you simply obey the appointed means? We oftentimes look at things that to us are perceived to be useless 
and reason with God as to why we ought to continue. And I tell you, because God has appointed them. When God appoints them, who do you think you are to question the validity? Some people have uh, judged and uh, rationalized the skipping of a service by saying, well, the person that was speaking in that particular service ain't my cup of tea. His style doesn't suit my ear, and therefore, I, you know, I don't get fed when I hear him. Brethren, God appointed him. God appointed that hour. God sent him to your soul. Don't question God. How many in this place would not have questioned the Jordan? Would you have just, oh, fine. You would not have expected that going to Elisha. You would have thought something miraculous and supernatural and immediate. You would have expected him to wave a wand over your head and to feel the tingles going up in your spine. After all, you've seen it on the television. You know how it's supposed to look and feel. And he says, go check the Jordan, dip in it seven times and go. Not very spectacular. Most of us would have questioned it, except God's man appointed it from God's appointment. And that grounds us as good enough reason. The means of grace, brethren, are God's means. Shall we neglect God's ways? Somebody says, I don't understand, Pastor. If God gave me the Spirit, if God has changed me, if God's Spirit indwells me, if Christ is faithful and powerful, and if all of it is set so that I'm going to endure to the end, why all these in-between means? Why emphasize all these necessary little things like prayer, the reading of Scripture, the hearing of preaching, the singing of hymns? Why? Why exhortation? Pastor, isn't the Lord enough for me? Well, I, the only answer I can give is that this just happens to be God's way. God has been pleased to appoint these means as vitally necessary for you to get to heaven. And if you neglect them, you may well not make it. In fact, one has to question why a saint would neglect the means of his salvation. As one suggested, like armor, which is allowed to rust, the saint who skips the means of grace becomes useless in battle and unable to be worn with comfort. Spiritual desires, as one other has said, need a great deal of cultivating. You yourself have confessed how dry you get so quickly, how easily and quickly you forget what you heard. You yourself moan over the difficulty of reading the scripture, of prayer, but look at our generation's response to that difficulty. We say, boy, when I read my Bible, it just, Pastor, most of the time, I have to confess, it doesn't come alive. And when I pray, I run out of things to say in about a minute and a half. I don't know how, what it means to pray long and really get through to God. And what is our response to that difficulty? We quit praying and reading the Scripture. Why? Because praying and reading the Scripture is difficult for an old dry soul like mine. When, when what we ought to be doing is saying, my soul is so dry and so dull of hearing, I need all the more to attend those things. If by nature I, it's so hard for me to get to God and to perceive His presence, how can I say, therefore, I'll, I'll exempt myself from the very means He has appointed to get me there? I know people who the last thing they ever do when they feel that God's left them is pray and ask for him to return. The last thing that ever occurs to them to do is to go to God. We heard it in Sunday school again this morning. 
waiting upon God. Not first running to man, complaining about the predicament. Go to God. But many of us, poor habits, poor teaching, sinful self-centeredness, it's the last thing that comes to our minds. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. Pastor, the Bible is a closed book to me. Have you presented yourself so before God and kept yourself so before God and showed to God your heart's desire is that His Word do become true to you that God's had a chance to answer prayer? Are you just telling me? Are you just moaning inside yourself? Neglecting the means of grace? Those who are diligent in the use of means and ordinances will find themselves sitting in the way where Jesus passes by. Those blind men, they couldn't do anything about their blindness, but they got themselves at the place where they knew Jesus came by. And I'll tell you, ordinarily in your life, you're not going to meet God in great blessing outside the appointed means of grace, both publicly and privately. You're not going to be able to go out and whine out on the side of the hill someplace and wish inside your own brain that things were different and find God there. You're not going to be able to sleep it off and hope it goes away. The dullness that is brought about by the neglect of the means of grace is not going away by continued sleep. You're going to have to deny some other things and give yourself to the means of grace. But brethren, this neglect of attendance to the means of grace grieves God's spirit and he withdraws. Don't be surprised if when God presents you a banquet and you think yourself too needless or too healthy to go to that banquet that the next time you go to the table there's nothing set there. Don't be surprised that if you shrink your own spiritual stomach by not feeding on the word of God regularly that pretty soon no food's going to be appealing to you. Don't be amazed that some of the greatest preaching you can hear has no effect on you after some that God's given you in the past you paid no attention to it. Don't be surprised the Bible's a dead book when you've done nothing more than what you were doing at 12 years old and you're reading of it and not a bit of you has grown in your pursuit of it. The means of grace. And we're not listing all the means of grace, but the neglect of them grieves the Spirit. But note what I'm saying. Not only the neglect for attending them, but the neglect of attending them with profit. It's more than just putting yourself in the position uh, where the means of grace are available. As Thomas Manton has said, there are lots of folks that hover about the palace without ever seeing the prince. There are lots of folks that have their, their anatomy sitting on the pew in the church building every time the means of grace are presented. And they go through the ritual of daily Bible reading. And they do their prayers. And they don't get near to God. And months go by. And they don't know God. And they're content to have it so. Maybe one of the reasons is that for some people their whole reason for the means of grace is wrong. Some people are doing their daily devotionals because their pastor said you ought to. And they want to fit in. Some people do their daily devotionals because they have a conscience. They say, well, Christians ought to do the daily devotionals. I haven't been doing mine. I'm going to start doing them. Then I won't feel bad about myself. But brethren, these things are not duties that are designed to get God on my side. These are not works designed to get God's approval and favor. These are means designed to get me to a particular end. 
These aren't things that get God to love me. These are things that help me to love God. These are means that are necessary for me to grow in my appreciation for what God is and what He's done. It's not so much that, did you read your Bible this morning? No. And we say, you did bad. God's going to get you. It's not so much that. As the same we would ask, did you eat this morning? No. Oh, bad person. That's not the point. How are you going to live if you don't eat? How are you going to survive? It's a, it's a question of real concern about your spiritual welfare that evokes that kind of question. And brethren, you need to check up on each other at this point. Exhorting one another. When somebody begins to complain and bellyache and you detect that they've forgotten who God is and they've forgotten that the Lord's sufficient, what do you say? Hmm. And walk off? You say, well, bless you, I'm sorry you feel this way. Don't you have something better to say than that? Oh, pastor, they've already heard what I have to say. That's right, but apparently they forgot. Tell them again. What what have you been reading in your Bible recently? That's a good question to ask. Um, What texts are being most precious to you these days? It's a good question. You're not criticizing them. You're not assuming they haven't read their Bibles. You don't point your finger and say, you wouldn't be like this if you were reading your Bible. Maybe they are reading their Bible. Maybe there's a real problem. But it's helpful sometimes to probe and ask. What are you reading in Scripture? Now, you know, sometimes i found that a certain section of the Psalms is very helpful when I have been in this state. I can see where you... Uh, have you read uh, lately Psalm 62? Or Psalm 23? Or psalm etc you see that kind of mutual exhortation which is very gentle but helps get people to the point is largely lacking among us and i feel that some of you really do wait for the pastors to do all this work because some of the things i'm asked to tell people i'm amazed they hadn't been told already recently sometimes i wonder if anybody else is telling them that stuff i'm sure some of you are but we need to do more of it exhorting one another especially as we see that day approaching, the Spirit of God is grieved by not well attending to our prophet, the means of grace. Brethren, if watching television Saturday night makes you very hard put to be awake at 9 o'clock Sunday morning, that thing's got to go. Have I laid a law down here saying you are not allowed under God's word to watch TV on Saturday? I have not done that. But you ought to be mature enough in your own faith to recognize what's costing you your alertness. If the last thought you have when you go into the bed on Saturday night is the Golden Girls, there's something going to be wrong with you on Sunday morning. Public TV is not going to prepare you for worship. I don't care how noble the program is. And especially some of these CBS movies at 9 o'clock on Saturday night, and you just sort of turn it on just to see, and you're hooked till 11. And then you come in here like this, nodding the head, and wondering why the Lord doesn't warm your soul. Well, your body's not giving your soul any room to be warmed. Some of you have sinus trouble. Let me suggest that you reconsider taking your sinus medicine at 6 o'clock Sunday morning. You might want to do without it that particular period of time. Why? So you can stay awake to worship. I, I trust that you understand what I'm driving at. To profit by the means of grace requires a bit of diligence, a bit of intelligence. It's not always good to go without breakfast Sunday morning because you're in such a rush to get to church. If your stomach growls all through the service, it's not very helpful to concentrate. It's very important 
that you see to it that you and those around you are to the maximum facilitated to attend the means of grace with profit. That's why we tell parents, it's your duty at home to train your children to be quiet while preaching is going on. How do you do it? You've got to have times at home when you speak to them and they're not allowed to talk and interrupt mom and dad. And out of that, they come to the church and they know that not to interrupt someone that's dealing with the Word of God. And what happens? We help other people's means of grace be profitable to them. That's why we give counsel to people about sleep habits, about children, about dress, about food. These things help all of us profit. And where there is a climate in which these means are neglected, the Spirit of God is grieved. But there's another thing that grieves the Spirit by way of general causes, and it's when saints return to costly and shameful sin. The return to costly and shameful sin. Turn back with me to Isaiah 63. Verse 10. The Lord has been faithful to his people. He was their Savior. His presence saved them. In his love and pity he redeemed them. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. But verse 10 tells us in Isaiah 63, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63:10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now we could go a long way going back through the scriptures at the evidences of their rebellion. I take because of the context of this particular section of scripture, this is not primarily the rebellion in the wilderness. This is the later rebellion after he had given them the land, when they went back to the old gods and the old idols. And in many cases, some of the old things they had worshipped in Egypt And in some cases, the idols of Canaan, which they refused to drive out as per God's command, they went back to the very things from which God had saved them. And as you recall, at Sinai, the first commandment God gave them, I am the Lord your God, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But they rebelled, and they turned back to these idols. And what did it do? It grieved the Holy Spirit. And then they began to lose battles, and God gave them over to their enemies. I'm discussing and describing the blatant, foolhardy, unmitigated departure of the saints back to all things from which God has saved it. Grieves the spirit. I'm not describing a slip. I'm not describing getting overcome with uh, great temptation and falling just a moment and then weeping your way back to God. I'm describing a turning back to an old sin with thoughtful preparation of mind that is supposed to have been removed from you when God saved you. In Romans chapter 6, verse 21, there's another passage that interests me. The apostle asks, What fruit then had you at the time in the things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Romans 6, 21. What fruit then had you at the time in the things of which you're now ashamed. Why does he have to say that to some people in the church at Rome who've been baptized into Christ, into Christ's death? 
Why does chapter 6 even need to be written to a bunch of saints? Regarding, know you not that you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Sin shall have no more dominion over you. Why tell that to Christians if all this is taken care of? If there's no need for battle. If there's no need to attend the means of grace. If there's no need for ongoing diligence in sanctification. Well, he asked these people in Rome, what good did it do you to do these things before? You're ashamed of them now. What fruit did you get out of them? They end up in death. In some cases, the reason for that question is, some people tend to be acting as though certain things that produce death are still available in their consciences. They're still optional. And they behave themselves in such a way as to bring a question as to whether they really have gotten it straight that those things kill. When a saint starts flirting around again with the old sins that he's ashamed of now, and goes back into the weaker and beggarly filth of the old days, the spirit is grieved. Those are the, those are the things that God sent his son to deliver us from. And when a church allows them or encourages them, it grieves the spirit. Why do I say that? Because some of you still have your eye on something from the past. And it stays there. It's like leaving a poster of a rock star on your room wall after you've gotten saved. It's like getting converted to Christ and leaving a crucifix or some other idol hanging in, in your house just because it cost some money when you bought it and you don't want to lose out on it. I don't believe that anymore, but somehow I just can't turn it loose. Brethren, there is a great need among us to stop being afraid of saying goodbye to our past and cutting off all the memories from some of it. Some of us are so afraid that it's going to cost us a lot to follow Christ and we're going to lose something. We're sort of still hanging on, making provision for the flesh in case the flesh ever makes a demand on us. Men know this with what their eyes are vulnerable to and every time they open their eyes up to the old past shameful things, they find it's not very far from that to falling right back into them. The maturing saint knows what it means to watch his eyes in such a way that he does not allow his, his eyes to go below six feet above the ground anywhere he walks. And with the billboards, he can't go above about seven feet. And he can't pick up certain week, news weeklies. He can't pick up certain magazines. And he can't accompany his wife to some grocery store checkouts unless he's going to keep his eyes glued straight ahead. And then he has to watch out for the cashier. And he knows the cost of giving his eyes over. But let me suggest what's happening. Oftentimes when we give our eyes to that location where we know what we're going to see when we look, it betrays a, a, a remaining division in our hearts. Brethren, you know where your eyes get in trouble. You don't need to be told. Why then do you continue to look? And then blame God for not giving you escape from this overwhelming temptation. Or expect that God understands you couldn't help it. Because this is the way you're made. And you mitigate your guilt a bit by that. The reason you look in many cases is because you still have a divided heart. There's still something there you, you kind of wish you could, you hadn't lost all of it. There's a little of it you still desire. There's still the hope that maybe there's a way you can get a little of the pleasure without a lot of the guilt. That's a trap, isn't it? Because you never stop there, do you? Some of you ladies, you've learned that in your emotions there are certain times that you just got to watch your mouth. 
or you will go beyond what is prudent and what is good and you make no effort to do so. Perhaps you like the extraordinary attention you get when you fall off, fall off the, uh, the edge and go over the cliff and lose control. Maybe you like that. Sometimes maybe you're not being diligent enough to cry to God in the means of grace that he'll give grace. I'm not suggesting that we're supposed to be stoic, but some of us are not showing that we have a single mind toward holiness. It grieves this pastor's heart. Any who lead the people of God is grieved when they see some people continuing in the same patterns month after month, year after year, that continue to get them in trouble with their souls. And they just won't change. They'll repent and cry and go right back and do the very same thing. Just like an old dog. Just like the sow returning to the vomit and to the wallowing in the mire. This divided heart that produces some of these returns to shameful and costly sins is spoken of in the first chapter of James when he says, A two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. One of the roots of uncontrolled anger in the professing Christian is a heart who's not set firmly on the kingdom of God first and last. A two-souled, a double-minded man. A man who wants the kingdom of God but still has a few things in this world he wants to get to. And you know what will produce that, that, that will produce in him? An instability in all his ways. He's not predictable. He can't control himself. And everyone around him pays the price for his constant instability. And then he wants people to believe that Jesus has saved him and is real and has power as a savior. Returning to costly and shameful sins grieves the spirit. But now let's descend to specifics. And as we come to sew this up, we examine again Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to turn back with me there. This is our primary text and this is really the meat of what we're trying to say that causes the grief of the spirit I've summarized these things under four headings and I want to go through them relatively quickly but I want you to notice them the specific things that grieve the spirit especially as we see them in this text Ephesians 4.25 and following the first one is this a lack of transparency grieves the spirit a lack of transparency some of you don't even know what that means you can see through it transparent what you see is what you get there's nothing hidden there's no false front there's no facade here we've not covered over the glass so you can hardly know what you're looking at transparency where did I get that verse 25 wherefore putting away falsehood brethren that does not just mean telling a lie with your mouth all falsehood all this spirit of deception this spirit of living two lives and hoping people in the church don't find out about anyone but the one that's done publicly this fear of confiding in brethren this the resistance to confessing faults one to another that we may be healed the reason some aren't healed they haven't confessed faults they're trying to hide Many of us can see the symptoms, brethren. You're not hiding it. We don't know what the problem is, but we can see some concerns. This transparency is necessary. 
among a church, putting away falsehood, speak your truth, each one with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. The climate of biblical unity produces transparency. And out of the climate of being and being conscious of being members one of another, we are able to trust each other. We are able to confess one to another. We are able to love each other. It's in this climate of truth. And when that climate is compromised, by hidden practices, deceptive practices, lack of transparency, the Holy Spirit is grieved. It affects the individual and it affects the church. When truth falls, it brings down the entire house. Entire churches are diseased with this lack of transparency. One of the reasons in history that people have dressed like peacocks in churches to cover up the reality. They like to focus on the external. The discerning people look beyond the external, and especially the Spirit of God. This lack of transparency doesn't help. It makes the problem worse. Dear brethren, lie not one to another. Speak the truth one to another. Why? Because you're members one of another. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have a therapy session here. I've seen that stuff. I'm not talking about sitting in a circle and telling everything you ever thought, felt, or knew, or experienced. I'm not saying collect all the sins of your past and make sure all the church knows about them in detail. I'm not suggesting that at all. That's not what the text is talking about. It is talking about a spirit that doesn't want to come clean with the people of God that's rooted in two things. I don't trust you people, and I don't care about you people. I don't trust you and I don't love you. You're not important enough to me for me to let you know me. Now I'll tell you, this frustration of a lack of transparency greatly affected the churches in this country along about the 50s and the 60s. When I was in college, this was a real problem. And the liberal wing of the church took out after this business and went after what they called honesty. And the whole books were written by theologians, one from Harvard, on honesty. And what he meant by that is, if you feel it, do it, and don't be ashamed of it, and do it at church, and do anything you want to do, and that we need to be honest. He was fighting against this facade in religion. He just had the wrong solution. We're not saying that honesty means that if you've got a particular lust, you've got to tell us all and continue to expose it out in front of us so you wouldn't be a hypocrite. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about putting on such a front that nobody who loves you has a chance to help you. That you're not making yourself vulnerable. You're hiding the real you. And you're bringing into question the genuineness of your profession. This lack of transparency where folks are so caught up in themselves that they can't open up to anybody. You, they don't let anybody get to know them or get closer than arm's length. Grieves the spirit. And all the costs that come with it, come with that. Some don't understand yet that when you became a member of the Church of Christ, the family connections that made your blood the same as your daddies and mothers and brothers and sisters have been overwhelmed and overcome by a new connection. 
You have not yet listened to the word of Christ who said, He that loves father or mother or husband or wife or son or daughter or his own life more than me is not worthy of me. You still are more devoted to the ties of family than to the ties of Christ and his kingdom. And I'm not suggesting, brethren, I'm not a Mooney, I'm not a cultist, I'm not suggesting that we rip off family relationships and make it all amalgamated into the church. But I'm saying that out of that tendency, there is a lack of transparency in many because you don't value the people of God in the kingdom of God as highly as you value the natural connections you have with your own family. And I tell you, when you get to heaven, you're going to learn what Jesus said. They neither marry nor are given in marriage there, but are as the angels. And all of a sudden, the things that were most precious to you in earthly ties will be swallowed up in much more precious relations. That's what the Lord meant when he said, Who are my mother, my brethren? They that do the will of my father. That's who all of our mothers and brethren are. That's what he meant when you lose houses and lands and family for his sake in the Gospels and you'll get a hundredfold more in this life. Some of you lost a closeness with your parents when you came to this church. But has not God given you moms and dads and brothers and sisters and cousins all over this place? Why hold back from us? Plunge your life into the new family relations that God's given you. That lack of transparency grieves the spirit. And I ask you, what are you getting from your carnal relations who don't love Christ? What are you getting that we can't supply you? Except grief. For some, it's an idol. Your own identity... Your own natural carnal identity is more important to you than your identity with Christ and his people. We encourage people when they join this church not to sit in the same place all the time and wait for everybody else to come back and meet them. Circulate. Don't sit there with your arms full and say, well, if this church is a loving church, they'll come and they'll show me. Why? You're supposed to be a Christian too. It's just like a son whose daddy never said, I love you. You're going to wait till you're 70 till he says it? It's your duty. Go tell your dad you love him. You're the saint in the house. You're the one with the Spirit of Christ. Why wait for the other? Stretch out. Reach out. Overcome evil with good. The second specific, though, quickly, having considered briefly the lack of transparency, the lack of considerateness in a church grieves the Spirit. Lack of considerateness. It goes down this list here. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Verse 29, let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying. Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, railing. Let it be put away with you with all malice, and be you tender-hearted, kind, forgiving one another. The absence of that kind of consideration of brethren grieves the spirit. Where there's ill will, corrupt speech, careless speech, spite, hatred, envy, bitterness, the spirit is grieved. What kind of relationship is it when two people have been made one in Christ and are members one of another and they're against each other? When they can't smile and speak at each other at the end of a worship service, at the back of a building, because one of them hurt the other's feelings last week. Or when they got a business deal <coughs> that went sour, 
And in the church, they separate themselves as far as they can, hoping never to run into the other. What a thing to grieve the Spirit, and it does. Because the very thing for which Christ died, that they may all be one, Father, as thou art in me and I in thee. It's contradicted. The blood of Christ looks to be a failure in a church where people are forming their little groups and their camps, or where some individual is too proud to go to a brother or sister and say, I don't know what the breakdown in communication is between us, but if I've done something, please tell me. I'm not aware of it, but I'm sure that I must have. If I, it, Please help me so that we won't have this breakdown. Where there's that lack of consideration and where you harbor ill will and bitterness, speech that's rotten or poorly timed, spite, hatred, sarcasm, that grieves the spirit. Brethren, there's no place for sarcasm in the church. Any more than there's a place for it in the Christian home. There's no place for it in the church. Some smart answer when some saint makes a comment and you've got to rip them. You've got to, you've got to take your shot at them. Brethren, that grieves the spirit. Put it away. And if you've done such, go put it right. In the third place, a specific cause of grieving the spirit is unbiblical treatment of offenses unbiblical treatment of offenses. Simply put, refusing to forgive when a brother has sinned against you and has repented. How many times do you have to do this? Till seven times? The Lord's response, I say unto you, till seven times seventy, which means as long as he turns and repents, as many times as he repents, you forgive. Now let me clarify what forgiveness means for you. Forgiveness means that never again will you use that offense against this person, either in your own heart or to him or to anybody else. When you say, I'm sorry, I sinned, will you forgive me? And that person says, yes, I forgive you. If three weeks later that person, the next time you sin, says, that's the second time. That's twice you've done that to me. That tells you he has not laid that thing aside. That means he hasn't forgiven. He's harbored it. I didn't say you have to put it out of your brain, brethren. The Lord doesn't require that. We're supposed to remember our sins, but we're not supposed to remember them against people who've repented. When it says the Lord says, I'll remember your sins no more, I don't believe that is a cognitive fact. I think it means I will not remember them against you. They'll not be brought up to heap upon you. You don't have to worry about those past sins ever being quoted back to you by God once you've repented and left them. That's not the way God functions. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. It grieves the Spirit when a saint sins and can find no place of forgiveness among other saints. Brethren, what a travesty. That's an inexcusable thing. What I'm appealing for is that you cry to God and you function in such a way that that other person doesn't have to come and grovel at your feet. How did the father do his son who took his life, his will's money, his testament money, ahead of time, ran off, wasted it all, finally came to himself and was not worthy to be called a son and came back planning to be a slave in his daddy's house. Daddy ran to meet him. Didn't sit smugly in his chair at home and then when the kid comes in, make him suffer a little bit longer, wondering how dad's going to respond. Hmm. Hmm. 
didn't even go out with a long list of requirements to make it up to him. In fact, when he saw him, he fell on his neck and kissed him and said, Quickly, go prepare the fatted calf, bring a robe. We're not going to even give him a period of time to wait. We're going to receive this repenting son. That spirit, brethren, is lacking in many of us, and it grieves the spirit. Remember what it says? Forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I ask you the question. <coughs> when you sin, you know you sin, and you come to God, and you get on your knees, and you say, Lord, I sinned. Have mercy on me, O God. What are you asking for? What are you hoping? You're asking that God would not count that against you and punish you as you deserve. You're asking that God would apply the blood of his son to you so that it's washed away and you don't have to live under the grief anymore. You're asking that God would receive you as a father and secure you and give you the assurance that he still loves you, that you're still his, and that you don't have to live another day under the sour hand of God's rebuke. You're hoping that God, for no other reason than that Jesus Christ has died, will let you get by with this, in this case, by confessing. That's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about getting by with sin in, a, in an absolute sense, but we are, as far as you're concerned, talking about getting by with sin. You sin, and God puts it on Christ. And for Christ's sake, forgives you. I'm not speaking antinomian. I'm not talking about cheap forgiveness, but I'm talking about thorough forgiveness. Brethren, did you, do you have any thought when you come to God for forgiveness that the blood of Jesus is a little bit short in, able, in its ability to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness? Don't you indeed hope that God will wipe your slate clean when you confess your sin? Do you desire that God sort of halfway do it? Or maybe hold, keep back from you when you come? He said, you call upon him in truth, he hears. And when you come, don't you hope he hears? Don't you expect him to? His word is given promises. Christ has died. Would not you be confused if God refused to forgive a sinner coming in Christ's name? Dear brethren, just as much as you expect God to forgive you, you forgive each other. Because if you will not forgive your brother his trespasses against you, neither will God forgive you. Nothing could be clearer in the whole Bible. Don't give me this stuff. Well, at least I'm saved. I tell you, the Spirit of God does not give testimony to such claims. He's grieved when we do such things. But finally, and I have to go quickly with this one, disorderly conduct grieves the Spirit. Disorderly conduct. And I say that to summarize verse 28. <clears throat> Let him that stole stop stealing. Rather, in contrast to what he did, let him work with his hands, labor, with a motive not only to meet his own needs, but to have something to give to the other who's in need. Disorderly conduct includes not pulling your weight in the kingdom of God, in the church of God, and in the world. You depending on others to pull the weight for you as a purposed lifestyle. Setting yourself out, intending to grab all you can grab and give as little as you have to. Laziness in a people grieves God. Selfishness in a people grieves God. 
And some of the churches that are most vocal about the Holy Spirit's work amidst them are the most self-centered, carnal, arrogant, selfish, and ungiving people in the world. They talk a lot about the Holy Ghost, and half of them don't know how to pay their debts. They love a church that loves as long as they're on the receiving end. And I tell you, brethren, there's nothing that grieves the Spirit more than to have a man expecting that others are going to take up the slack for his irresponsibility. And that includes every area in the church life. Summarizing this one thing, you've been stealing, quit stealing. You do your part. You do your contribution. You labor with your hands. You get off, off, get up off your duff and get to work. And you, the reason I chose the word disorderly is because it reminds us of Second Thessalonians 3 where the church had to rebuke a man in public and had to quit having fellowship with him because he was not working at all but was eating other people's bread and was a disorderly type. He loved to talk and rebuke and discuss theology but he wasn't making a living honorably and the church had to censure him publicly for such behavior. It grieves the spirit. Summarizing all these causes, let me just say this one thing. Every bit of what we've just listed is rooted in self-centered, self-seeking. Every bit of it. If you go back and just think through the things we've listed, it's all rooted in a self-centered, self-seeking heart. The total virtual, total neglect of other people's needs and other people's importance. The scripture says, let not every man think of himself as important, but consider the other more important than himself. In honor, preferring one another. When that's not present to a large degree in the church, that church is indwelt by a grieved Holy Spirit. Get your mind off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Don't you know there are others that have a lot worse problems than you have? It's selfishness that won't work for a living and wants others to take care of. It's selfishness that's greedy and bitter because things aren't going well. It's selfishness that won't forgive when brethren come. It's a preoccupation with me, mine, and my problems. Brethren, that's wicked, and the Spirit is grieved at such, such a heart. It's the furthest thing from the heart of God that you can get, self-centered. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, quickly, how do you recover yourself from a grieved spirit indwelling you? How does a church cut recover from such a, a tragedy, such a travesty? Well, there's a little verse in, in Hosea. We'll not turn for time, but in Hosea chapter 4, God says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Let that not be said of us, brethren. When because the Spirit withdraws, we, we realize something's out of whack in our lives. Let us not so be attached to that thing that's out of whack that God finally says, forget, leave him alone. When the Spirit of God, in order to bring you back to him, backs off a bit, and in order to lure you to take note that something's dreadfully wrong in your attitude in life, when the Holy Spirit ministers in such faithfulness to you, by withdrawing good influences so you'll panic enough to run to him, don't run the other way. Three elements of recovery. First, contrition. Contrition. You remember the psalmist 
in the 51st Psalm, which we read a bit of last time. I would bring sacrifices, but the Lord doesn't want them. I would, I'd do whatever it took. I'd shed the blood of whatever animals I could collect, Lord, but that's not what you want. You want a broken spirit, a contrite heart. That you will not despise. Isaiah 66, just after the passage we read a bit ago about the grieving of the spirit, God says, I'm, I inhabit eternity. The earth is my footstool. Who's going to build a house for me? And then he said, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a contrite spirit and a broken heart who trembles at my word. What does contrition mean? It means more than admitting you did wrong. Most people are easily made to admit wrong when somebody catches them and accuses them. That's not enough. Contrition means to be broken and crushed and ground down to powder. There's nothing of you left except a pile of dust. You're so down that you have no thought that you could ever get yourself back up. Before God, you're a a pile of dust. You've been squished down. And you don't even have a defense left. You don't have an answer. Your mouth is shut as Job. Who is this that darkens counsel against wisdom, God asked Job? A righteous man. And the result finally was Job shut his trap. As long as you're still opening your mouth to reply to God, as long as you're still able right after confession of sin to crack a cute little joke, as long as you can within ten minutes after a sermon has been preached to your conscience walk out and pick up some conversation about a circus someplace, you are not contrite. We have a problem in our culture of thinking we've confessed with a broken heart when we hardly even felt any of the weight of it at all. Brethren, contrition means to so to get into it with God's mind that you can't see anything left about you that's good or worth anything. Oh Lord, oh Father, let me be a hired servant in your house. It's better than what I've had with my sin. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And when I don't see that, in people who say they're confessing sin, I really have problems believing that I'm seeing true repentance. Repentance is not enough to say, you're right, I made a mistake, yeah, I see that passage, that's sin. Hmm, what should I do? Repentance involves a broken heart. You say, Pastor, I I think I agree, but I don't have that. You need to beg God to give it to you. And you need to spend enough time in the Scriptures and ask God to make the Scriptures be real enough to you that you can see what you've done and what you're worth before God. Because that's the only kind of person to whom God will look in favor. To this man will I look of a contrite spirit, of a broken heart who trembles at my word. I believe the Spirit is grieved in many churches because we don't tremble at And brethren, there is absolutely no other way to recovery except a broken down heart. Quit trying to save yourself and your repentance. Lose yourself and your value and your worth, your self-esteem, and fall before Christ. You who have not stood up to your family, you who have not sacrificed at work for Christ, you who have been ashamed of him at the workplace, 
you at school, you who, whose date life does not show purity, you who fight with your parents and still mouth off to mother and dad, you parents who still fight like alley cats and don't know how to humble yourselves, break your hearts. The second aspect of recovery is obedience. And this is a passage to which we must turn before we can close. James chapter 4. James 4, verse 8. It's not enough to sort of feel broken and crushed. That's minimum. It's not enough. To restore good operating fellowship with God requires something else. In verse 8 of James 4, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You see the responsibility laid on the sinner here? You draw near to God if you want God to draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. You see, again, he goes to the root of the problem. you got a double mind. The reason you can't get broken over your sin is because you love it. You love you. You see it's wrong, and you're dreadfully afraid of the biblical consequences. And so you say, I'm sorry. And you say, forgive me, Lord. But you can't fall and be broken. Your heart's not broken. Why? You're double-minded. What do you got to do? Purify your heart. Become single-minded. Pastor, how do I do that? Brethren, I'm not prepared to tell you that just yet. I'm prepared to tell you if you don't do that, don't expect God to draw near. If you expect the Spirit of God to warm the cockles of your heart, you better cleanse your hands. That means correct the doings that have been against God's law. Stop doing the wrong and start doing the right. You won't be able to trace one piece of biblical doctrine to the contrary. Put right what you put wrong as much as you can. You stole something, you repay it. Whatever you cheated him out of, you've got to give it back. You said a nasty word, you've got to go back and apologize for that nasty word and replace it with decent words. Etc., etc. Cleanse your hands. But it doesn't stop. He says, purify your hearts. Don't be satisfied that you've pleased the church, that you've gotten that person to okay your behavior and smile and now everything's smooth again. Don't be content when you've covered up for the external sin until your heart is pure toward God. Single-minded devotion to nothing but the cause of Christ. You've not thoroughly repented. The root of the problem is you've got a divided loyalty. Get undivided. The path of obedience. He deals with that whole, in this whole text, he says in verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Be, verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he'll exalt you. He's dealing with the heart of contrition and obedience. But finally, 
without having, I don't believe it would be righteous to preach such a sermon and not conclude with this ultimate aspect of recovery from a grieved spirit. We must learn to plead at the fountain that has been opened for sin and uncleanness. The, the, the great psalmist said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. It wasn't enough for him to admit his error. It wasn't even far enough to be broken as his sight of his sin became more and more clear to him and to be contrite before God. But in the context of that contrition, he appealed to the only source of his deliverance, the cleansing power of the appointed means of grace in the blood of Christ. Purge me with hyssop, the Old Testament application of the blood with that hyssop symbolizing the New Testament application of the blood shed once for all for our sin. Dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, if you see yourself as undone before God, and if you see all these heavy commandments to get rid of the thing to which you're addicted, to lay aside your idols, to depart from your sins and run to Christ, I tell you, you see it is so big you can't do it. There's only one solution, there's only one cure, there's only one power enough to relieve you and deliver you from your sin. And it resides solely in the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood one time so that all sinners for all times may come with all their sin and know that there's enough cleansing there for every problem you've got in your soul. And it all has to rest right there. You have to leave it there. A broken heart prepared to put everything right before God that God has stated is wrong, pleading to the blood of Christ alone for your cleansing and your pardon and your forgiveness. Nothing could grieve the Spirit more than for a saint who has fallen into sin to fail to find the restoration of blessing where it always is to be found, at the right hand of God in Christ. The blood of Christ is our appeasement. Have you grieved the Spirit? Don't go out here saying, Wow, I sure have. Well, you got to me. I, that's true. I've grieved the Spirit. That's not enough. Run to Christ before you get out of here. And let the blood of Christ avail for the cleansing of sin that has been so serious that the Holy Ghost has withdrawn his power and influence from you. And plead with God for Christ's sake to give measures of his spirit again to you that, you, that the bones which he has broken may rejoice, that the joy of his salvation may again reverberate in the singing of your hymns, in the heart that's not any longer burdened down by unconfessed and unmortified sin. Cry to God. And with Cowper let us sing What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, thou sacred dove. Return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. May God give us true discernment as to whether we've grieved him and true faith in rectifying the situation at the foot of the cross. Let us pray together. Oh,
Father, it would be foolish of us to assume that we have not in our days perhaps often brought grief to you. We would first ask that if this church is residing in any context in which we are of grief to your spirit, that you may show us, help us, and restore us. O Lord, we understand this doctrine to be more than slips and errors. We understand it to be an expression of your spirit's withdrawal from habitual, received and allowed sins, attitudes and dispositions that militate against our profession. And so we ask our God that you may give to us that which we find hard in ourselves to create. Create in us, O Lord, a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. Make us to speak truth in the inward man. Cause us, O Lord, really and genuinely to be a broken heart. Break our hearts and make us contrite before you. And grant that we may, as we look upon your Son, find the eyes of receptivity and grace. Hear us, O Lord, for the sake of Christ who died, for a people unworthy. And in any case in this place where there is a grieved spirit, we pray you deal with and restore us, O Lord. Hear our plea. Take up the slack our gods that was left in the preaching and make the issues of your word to settle in upon our hearts. We ask all this for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.